Well, this morning I'm going to talk to you about our jealous God. The passage of Scripture that uh, is next as we progress through this study of the growing and developing church, the first church, which is recorded by Luke in the book of Acts, seems to be a bit of an aside to uh, the ongoing narrative. And one could really wonder why it's even inserted into the account. Because it doesn't seem to have that much to do with the growing and developing church. But it's there. And by God's providence, it's there, and, and therefore, unequivocally, it is relevant. Before reading, I, I want us to reflect on an attitude of God that is really difficult for us to understand. It's the jealousy of God. I think that God really wants us to understand this about him. I base that on a number of reasons, but I think first and foremost, when you look at the first two commandments, in the Ten Commandments, they speak to his jealous nature. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven, above, or on earth beneath, or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Ironically, even as Moses was receiving those commands from the Lord on Mount Sinai, as they were being scribed on the stone tablets, the people of Israel were doing exactly what they were not supposed to be doing. They were making an idol. They made a golden calf. And they were giving sacrifices to it. And after Moses was told by God what was going on, and he went down the mountain with the tablets in his hands, and when he saw it happening, he threw them down and they broke. After Moses did that, he pleaded with God, have mercy have compassion. Forgive us. Don't let this break our relationship with you. And God, who is compassionate and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in love, said to Moses, I'll make a covenant with you. And he said these words once again. 
Do not worship any other God. For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Clearly, we are to see God as a jealous God. But this is puzzling, of course, because as the uh, spokesperson for this generation, Jay-Z says, jealousy is a weak emotion. You see, we see jealousy as a sign of weakness. It's, it's wanting something or, or wanting to be something that we can't have or be. Something that someone else has or is. We see jealousy as a, as a symptom of fear. The fear of being diminished relative to somebody else. The fear of not being as good as someone else. Jealousy is a negative emotion in that case, clearly. And then when we read God's declaration to Moses that he is a jealous God, that his name is Jealousy, and we know that God is perfect, it's puzzling, and, and we have to resolve it somehow. But it's for that very reason that God is perfect, that it behooves us to look into it and, and try to figure this out. Because if he is perfect and he claims that he is jealous, what does it mean that he is jealous? How can jealousy be a praiseworthy emotion or an attribute as it relates to God? So we need, I think, to broaden our understanding of jealousy and what it means as it relates to God. Now, for the new folks here, you'll know that I go to two guys for help. I'm a dunce compared to these guys. But they help me sort through this stuff because this is puzzling. Well, one of them is John Piper. And he says, God's jealousy is not the reflex of weakness or fear. It's not the reflex of weakness or fear. So if his jealousy is not what we commonly accept as jealousy, what does it mean when God says, my name is Jealous? So John helped me, and then I went to Wayne Grudem, who helps me too. And he says, God's jealousy means that God continually seeks to protect his own honor. God's jealousy means that God continually seeks to protect his own honor. In other words, he doesn't suffer imposters or misrepresentation lightly. Now let me explain. This lovely couple... <laughs> oh, it's too bad the coloring's not good. I look particularly wonderful in that picture. <laughs> <laughs> This, is a picture, this picture was taken on our 30th anniversary when we went to Croatia. I didn't even know Croatia existed were it not for my son who's well-traveled and said, you need to go to this place. So we never celebrated our anniversaries really in a big way, and so we decided on our 30th we'd go to Croatia. It's very sunny there, very warm, and it's sort of a very Mediterranean feel to it. 
Um, I decided to buy some new sunglasses, which I'm sporting there. And they were Ray-Bans. And I paid $5 for them. Cheap. <laughs> now, of course, I knew they weren't real Ray-Bans. Because real Ray-Bans cost $190. The ones that look just like this, that are, these were a rip-off rip off of, uh, cost about $190. Mine had plastic lenses that scratched, flimsy construction, were purely for looks, because there was no UV protection, I'm sure, from these things. But you know, they looked pretty real. I am sure that Ray-Bans jealously tries to protect its brain. And it must drive them crazy to see cheap imitations like the one I bought for five bucks in Croatia. What drives them crazy is that it can give the uninformed the wrong impression of Ray-Bans. Right? Ray-Bans is a very good quality product. What I bought wasn't, but they both had, they both have the Ray-Bans logo on Similarly, God who is God who is perfect in every way, jealously protects, if you will, his brand, who he is, and how he is perceived in the world. Now, with this in mind, we're going to go to this little excerpt that seems like an aside in the narrative that Luke has in Acts. We're going to read Acts 12, 19 to 24. Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. This is Herod who had James killed and tried to arrest Peter, but God wouldn't have any of it. He had been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They now joined together and sought an audience with him. After securing the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace. Because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. The audience, they shouted, this is the voice of God, not a man. This is the voice of a God, not a man. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. Sounds disgusting, doesn't it? But the word of God continued to spread and flourish. You see, because Herod didn't rebuke his audience or correct his audience, but accepted their wild flattery, which is what it was, as a legitimate assessment of his true nature, God destroyed him. Just as an aside, I, just to tell you that the, the the historian that is 
the go-to historian of this period of time is a guy called Josephus. And he has this account with a little bit more detail. Apparently, Herod was, it was the second day of a festival it had to do, it was in honor of someone, and uh, it was a sporting event. And he showed up in robes that were made of silver so that he would sparkle when the sun shone on him. And true enough, Josephus said that he became instantly ill and five days later died a disgusting death. God's jealous commitment to his brand, to his singular, unmatched identity, resulted in judgment and a humiliating end to Herod's life. Herod would have known better. Although Herod's family, the Herods, had been in authority in Palestine for a while, they were not ethnically Jews. However, some of them practiced Judaism. So this Herod would know what an offense he was committed. So don't feel sad for him. And don't make excuses for him. He deserved the judgment that he got. But I think that there is more to God's reaction in this story that at first may come to mind. And I believe that this is because of God's demonstrated approach in his relationship to his people over the years. I believe God's judgment on Herod was not just because Herod accepted the praise worthy of God from his audience, but also for how Herod misrepresented God. If he was going to represent God, if he was going to pretend to be God, he was a very poor example. It was a poor impersonation. What would the people of Sidon and Tyre thought if he actually was a god? Well, first of all, they would think that God is arrogant. Because Herod was very arrogant, as demonstrated by his outfit that day. They would figure that the only way you get an audience with God is if you have connections. They somehow got an audience with him because they knew a guy called Blastus who happened to be serving in the entourage. They would think that God required you to grovel for the most basic of necessities. Because if you notice, they were just trying to repair relations with Herod because they needed food. And so, as Herod 
the con man, tries to present himself as a deity. He gave off this idea that God is arrogant, that you have to have connections, that you need to grovel to get anything out of him, that he is so far above us. And you know, Herod's fraudulent con could not have been further from the truth of God's true nature. There's a Russian proverb that says this, Jealousy and love are sisters. I want you to think about that one today. Jealousy and love are sisters. Speaks to me of the fact that they're very closely connected in some way. You see, God's MO with his creation, his disposition, his brand, if you will, um, has always been love. He loves us. Let me remind, let me remind you of the, of the words, the phrase that constantly are used throughout the Old Testament about him. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. Do you say that with me? I think you need to have that written on your forehead. <laughs> say it with me. The, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. Let's say it all together now. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. If you ever get ticked off at God, say that to yourself. He's compassionate. He is gracious. Gracious. Abounding in love, slow to anger. I want to tell you the context of those declarations that God made about I am a jealous God. Let's just remind ourselves. Exodus 34, remember, Moses has come down with the tablets. The people have been engaged in idol worship. Moses throws down the stones. They break. And then Moses pleads with God, please forgive us. Don't abandon us. And God, who is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love, says, I'll make a covenant with you. And he says these words as he's talking to Moses about this covenant. Then the Lord said, I'm making a covenant with you. Before all your people, I will do wonders never before done in any nation in the world. The people you live among will see how awesome is the work that I, the Lord, will do for you. Obey what I command you today. I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Be careful not to make a treaty with those who live in the land, 
where you are going, or they will be a snare among you. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stone, and cut down their Asherah poles. Do not worship any other god, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Jealousy and love are sisters. In fact, as John Piper so clearly explains, God's love and jealousy is that of a devoted and loving husband. In writing about that passage, John says this, This picture is confirmed by verses 15 and 16, which warn Israel against playing the harlot with other gods. The demand of the covenant is, don't be a harlot. Don't commit adultery against God. Don't let your heart turn from him and go after other things. For your God, your husband, who, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. I ask you, is that type of jealousy wrong? A faithful husband who lavishes love on his bride and has his heart broken when she goes with another. This idea that God is a devoted, loving husband who lavishes love and honor on his wife, his people, is brilliantly expressed by Ezekiel. He brought God's word to the exiles in Babylon. The people of the southern kingdom of Israel, the northern kingdom had already been demolished and taken away because they were harlots and sought after other gods. But Ezekiel is speaking to the people of Judah, the southern kingdom, while they're in exile in Babylon. And he expresses the heart of this husband. He expresses the heart of God. God expresses his heart through Ezekiel to the exiles who are being punished for their unfaithfulness. Listen to these words. This is God expressing his heart to this unfaithful bunch in Babylon. Ezekiel says, the word of the Lord came to me, and then he quotes God. The son of man, confront Jerusalem with her detestable practices and say, this is what the sovereign Lord says to Jerusalem. On the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to make you clean, nor were you rubbed with salt or wrapped in clothes. No one looked on you with pity, or had compassion enough to do any of these things for you. Rather, you were thrown out into the open field. From the day you were born, you were despised. Then I passed by and saw you kicking about in your blood. And as you lay there in your blood, I said to you, live. I made you grow like a plant of the field. You grew and developed and entered puberty. Your breasts had formed and your hair had grown, yet you were starkly naked. 
Later I passed by, and when I looked at you and saw that you were old enough for love, I spread the corner of my garment over you, and I covered your naked body. That is betrothal. That is a man choosing his wife. I gave you my solemn oath and entered into a covenant with you, declares the sovereign Lord, and you became mine. I bathed you, listen to this, I bathed you with water and washed the blood from you. I put ointments on you. I clothed you with an embroidered dress and put sandals of fine leather on you. I dressed you in linen and covered you with costly garments. I adorned you with jewelry. I put bracelets on your arms and a necklace around your neck. And I put a ring on your nose, earrings on your ears, and a beautiful crown on your head. Your fame spread among the nations on account of your beauty because the splendor I had given you made your beauty perfect, declares the sovereign Lord. But you trusted in your beauty and you used your fame to become a prostitute. You lavished your favors on anyone who passed by and your beauty became You see, these are the words of a husband whose extravagant love has been scorned by an unfaithful wife. This is our jealous God who constantly preserves his honor and who is fully invested in the object of his love, his people. Now we have seen that in the new covenant, God's bride is not limited to Israel, but includes all people of faith, people who would trust in the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And in the New Testament and in the new covenant, we are that bride. Which also means that we were the naked child wallowing around in neglect whom Jesus came and put his garment around. Who Jesus came and lavished with love and good things. We are the bride of Christ, and he is jealous for us. Think of this. The people of the Old Covenant really couldn't relate to this as well as we can, because we have seen the full extent of his love. We know that he was perfect and he accepted our blame and our guilt and our sin and suffered the consequence on our behalf and died through crucifixion. His affections for us are the same as those expressed by Ezekiel. He loves us. 
And so this is the jealousy of God. It's related to his honor and it's related to his passion and love for, for us. We are the bride of Christ. And this is the jealous God who is our God. 